Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. This morning we are going to be in a new series on the gospel according to Mark. This is going to be the the core series for our church in the uh, near future. So uh, what does that mean to be the core series? All right, so Mark is is a longer book than we've done previously as a church. And so we're going to actually spend a decent amount of time in here. We might be in Mark for a couple of years uh, actually, as we go through it pretty slowly and methodically. Uh, but the reason we call it a core series and not the only series is because uh, we are going to take some breaks in between to do some smaller books, some smaller passages, and some you know one-off uh, sermons and series and things like that. So the steady diet of this church will probably be the gospel according to Mark uh, for the uh, near future, but look forward to some some breaks in there so we don't get too exhausted in just one place. So you might be wondering, like, why in the world are we uh, doing the gospel of, of Mark? Well, first and foremost, Mark is focused on Jesus as the Son of God. That's, that's, an, that's a wonderful thing to be focused on. Uh, Mark is also sort of a fast-paced thing, which kind of fits for the whole church planting thing, right? It's a, it's a very action-oriented, like, hey, we're going to do this this week. We're going to change directions. We're going to go here. We're going to do that, that sort of thing. So it kind of fits with us. As a, as a culture. So it's very fast-paced. Uh, Mark is the gospel of immediately. If you guys have read Mark uh, before, you will recognize that he says, and immediately they went, and then immediately after that they did this, and immediately they did this. In fact, I don't think that he goes from one place to another without saying that they immediately did something. Um, finally, the, the reason, one of the reasons that we want to do Mark is because it's often neglected by preachers. Like the first place that you're going to go for a lot of information concerning Jesus is going to probably be Matthew or Luke because they're more sort of full featured. They get a lot more detail in some of these uh, different instances with Jesus. But Mark is just so terse. Like he's just like, hey, this is what happened. Now we're going to move to the next thing. Uh, and, And so a lot of people don't do Mark. And so why not be a little off the beaten path, right? I mean, it's me. You guys know me. I'm a little off the beaten path. So we're going to do that uh, as a church. Finally, we, we want to do Mark because we need a balanced diet. We've done a series in the Ten Commandments. We've done Colossians. We've done Jonah. We've uh, done some topical sermons. Uh, and so now we want to hit something that's a gospel, right? It's a different literary genre. It tells a different story, right? The epistles, like Colossians, that's the, the letters of, of Paul. Uh, they give us good teaching, uh, but this is more of a narrative. So we get to a little bit of a different way to learn things. Uh, and so we're going to do that as a church uh, because we want, again, to, you to see the, the sort of whole of the scriptures. We want you to see that the Bible presents a wonderfully harmonious narrative that all points to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the whole thing. Uh, and so today we're going to start in the beginning. And we're going to start with just a single verse. We're going to read the first three ver- verses of, uh, of Mark, but we're going to really focus in on Mark 1.1. 1, 1. So why don't you guys stand with me as we read the word of God. And this will be short today. So here we go. Mark 1, 1 through 3 says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we pray that as we consider this, this short passage, that Lord, we would be drawn to understand the gospel centrality of Mark's ministry here, that it, we wouldn't simply see this as a gospel in literary genre, but that we would see the focus on the good news that Mark has. I pray that today we would see that gospel more clearly, more fully than maybe we have in the past. Lord, where we have misunderstood the gospel, help us, Lord, today to see it more rightly. And Lord, I pray that as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that you would draw us into worship. Lord God, the end, the, the, the point of, our, of, uh, of this sermon would be to draw us into worship. And Lord God, that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. It is in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So uh, I remember a time in middle school uh, when I was uh, tasked with presenting uh, a, 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 or making a presentation on the 28th president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, why I chose Woodrow, I don't know. Uh, he's not a very popular president. Uh, again, maybe because I'm a little off the beaten path that I decided to choose this guy. I don't quite remember what in the world led me to to, to choose this particular president. But uh, the requirements for this particular presentation were a, a paper of some length. I mean, it wasn't short. It was middle school, though, so it's probably like two pages, and I thought that was forever. Um, and then a trifold presentation, you know what I'm talking about? You had to do these? Yeah, like science fair style thing. And then some sort of like visual aid that would help you to get to know Woodrow Wilson just a little bit better. Uh, you know, they gave us plenty of time to do it. I mean, it was middle school. They gave us a few weeks to do it. Uh, and, and so what did I do? I started work about two days before it was due, because that's what you do when you're in middle school. Um, so there were a couple of different points of failure here uh, that, I, that I had not accounted for in my two days. First, uh, research on dial-up is really slow. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm old enough. Some of you guys aren't old enough to remember dial-up, but I was there. Uh, and for those of you who uh, lived in the pre-internet age, uh, I feel for you, uh, because you actually had to go to the library and look this stuff up. Um, the other things that, that I didn't really consider were, you know, writing citations took longer than I expected. Uh, you know, writing MLA format's not easy when you're a middle schooler. Uh, Wikipedia wasn't a thing, guys. You couldn't do that. Uh, and uh, I was only allowed to incite, uh, to, uh, to actually cite Carta, Encarta, the uh, encyclopedia. Remember this? Anybody remember this? Uh, I wasn't allowed to cite that more than just like once or twice. Also, my promised visual aid was a, was a three-dimensional bust of Woodrow Wilson. Th those of you who know me know I'm not very good with my hands, all right? Like, the guitar stuff is about all I can do <laughs> with my hands. Uh, and so I, I am not a sculptor. And I have to admit that, that my mom helped me make the sculpture. And by helped me, I mean she saw how terrible mine was and did it for me. Um, I, I think in 2D, guys, I'm sorry. Um, but the final grade I got on this was the interesting part. I got a, a B plus or an A. 
And so in, the, in my, my young mind, I thought to myself, this is the philosophy I'm going to adopt as I go into adulthood. Pressure makes diamonds. The fact of the matter is that the, the gospel of Mark is a diamond. It was created by heat and pressure. But it wasn't the pressure of deadlines. It was the pressure of persecution by the Romans. And it wasn't the heat of a potential failing grade. It was the heat of the tar that they would pour over Christians and light them on fire and put them in the garden of Nero so that he could light his garden with the bodies of Christians. Mark was written under heat and pressure. Around 50 or 60 AD is when the gospel would have been written here. It was under the reign of the emperor Nero, like I said, and he blamed Christians for this fire that had consumed 80% of the city of Rome, burned it to the ground, and he said, oh yeah, those Christians, they did that. There's absolutely no evidence that any Christian ever participated in this. And there's actually more evidence that Nero actually set the fire himself so that he could blame the Christians. Um, but he did this, and the punishment became, if you, are, if you are a Christian in Rome, you were going to be uh, arrested and not just put into prison. You would be thrown to wild beasts, and they would tear you apart alive. Or you would be lit on fire to light his garden at night. See, the gospel of Mark was created for Christians who needed to know the Christ for whom they might die the next day. That's why Mark wrote so quickly. He wanted to get as much information about this Jesus that was the Savior to these people that he could. So in light of that, again, he, he wrote very concisely and, and moved at a quick pace. And, but because Mark is so stripped down in how he kind of made his gospel, how he made this, uh, this story, uh, his main point becomes very, very clear, right? When you don't have a lot of time to say what you need to say, you, you have to say it pretty quickly. You have to get to the point. You, don't have, you can't, can't give all sorts of backstory. You can't go in there and, and go, like, I'm going to get to all the nuance of everything. I'm going to draw all these wonderful theological conclusions like maybe John did. No, Mark wrote this because he was like, you need to know the details right now, and this is all you need to know. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His focus was Jesus so when he started writing, he didn't start with genealogies. He didn't start with how this connects and things like that to, to a great degree. He just said, okay, this is the beginning. Let me start here. In fact, Mark starts and ends his gospel far more abruptly than any other gospel writer. But that doesn't mean that he starts so abruptly that we don't get a sense of how Jesus actually fits into the overall narrative of Scripture. See, his focus is Jesus, but Jesus the Jesus that he proclaims isn't disconnected from the rest of the Bible. So in Mark two or 1, 2 through 3, these uh, second and third verses of the passage we re read today, he weaves together passages from Exodus, Malachi, and primarily Isaiah in order to connect the beginning of the gospel to the prophecies that had been made hundreds of years previously. And he does this in just two verses. See, the revelation of Jesus Christ can never be disconnected from the rest of the Scripture. Without the Old Testament, we miss all the types and shadows that were fulfilled in Jesus. We miss the fall, and we miss God's promise of redemption. We miss the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, all of which pointed to Jesus. 
In fact, some scholars would say that when Mark writes the beginning of the gospel, what he really means is these two verses where I'm quoting from these, from these Old Testament books, this is the beginning of the gospel. It was way back then. That was the beginning. But he also is pointing from those to John the Baptist. So he's saying, hey, like not only did did these things way back hundreds of years ago point to Jesus, but now this man has arrived on the scene and he is also pointing to Jesus. See, whether he's referencing them, these Old Testament prophecies, or whether he's referencing John the Baptist who is a contemporary of Jesus, he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Like, the point is Jesus. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this other stuff. All of this simply pointed to Jesus. He's saying that these things were the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as he transitions to John's part in the narrative, Jesus really does become the focus. Um, so while the beginning of the gospel, yeah, was, was with the prophets and with John, uh, when, when the, the sun, S-O-N, crested the horizon, they everything became revealed, right? So he's like, these, these guys were like the moon. They, they were just reflecting the light of the sun. But when the sun came in, they were not as necessary anymore. They just pointed to him. We, we realized that maybe it wasn't about these people. Maybe it was about someone else. Maybe it was about Jesus. And next week, Brandon is going to actually preach on, uh, on John the Baptist, so I don't want to get in too far. But uh, the main thing that I, I want you to see today is Mark's real drive toward Jesus. So I would ask you, as Christians, do you keep Jesus at the forefront like Mark is doing here? I mean, do you spend more time thinking about COVID or politics or whatever triggers you on Facebook or do you spend more time thinking about Jesus, what he's done, how you should live your life in light of that? When people spend time with you, do, do they know what drives you? Or do they think that these other things drive you? Do they know that Jesus is your savior and that he has called you out of darkness and into light, that he has given you new life? Do they know that when they talk to you? I mean, when's the last time that you had a, a normal, like non-cheesy conversation with someone about who saved your soul? Question then is simply this. Is your life gospel-centered? I mean, even zooming out from there, though, just think about this church. I, I, Mosaic is only as gospel-centered as its members. Pastor Brandon and I want Mosaic to be a gospel-centered church and if being gospel-centered, though, and, and Christ-focused is something that you desire, then what are you going to do about it? That's what I ask you today. What are you willing to do about it? Is your life actually Christ-focused, or is that just something nice that a church should be? The reality is the church is the people. If our lives are not Christ-focused, this church will never be Christ-focused. Sure, the pulpit might be but there requires real change in your lives, real change in how you talk to people, how, real change in what you count as primary in your lives. Mark was clear in his presentation of the gospel because it was the most valuable thing he could possibly give to these Christians who might die the next day. 
Perhaps we could learn something from that. The urgency, the primacy of the gospel. Maybe we could learn to live quieter lives, minding our own business as the scriptures tell us to do, so that when we speak into a culture that is loud and boisterous and confused, when we speak, it's clear, it rings true. Maybe we would stand out amongst the noise just a little bit more. But maybe I've gone too far here. I mean, I'm talking about being gospel-centered. But in order to achieve this sort of gospel clarity that I'm talking about, we need to understand the gospel itself, the, the gospel of the one who, who calms the storm, the one who gives hope to the hopeless. And it all starts with understanding just the words that Mark uses to describe this gospel. We're going to do some word study today. And I know that might sound a little academic, but it is so important for us. Because our culture has lost something. Words mean things. <laughs> it's one of my favorite phrases. Because I don't think anybody actually like, understands that that's the truth. Words actually mean things. They convey ideas. And if we don't have common definitions of those words, those words are useless. And so we have to understand what this gospel is. In fact, I, I, I blame the church to this, uh, for this to some extent. In, in the 20, early 20th century, theological liberalism kind of crept in and, and sought to redefine traditional Christian terms, but they didn't tell anybody. So they would say, like, yeah, we, like, we confess this faith. We, we confess uh, this, this historical creed of the church. But what they meant by justification and what they meant by very God of very God was very different than what the church had historically meant by those terms. In fact, not only theological liberalism was to blame here, but to some extent fundamentalism is to blame as well. It was the reaction to, uh, to this theological liberalism that had crept in. The problem was that the, while the, the liberals wanted to tear down the, the foundation and leave the, the facade sort of standing, right? The, 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 the fundamentalists came in and said, well, no, we should just bulldoze the whole house and just leave the foundation. They're like, we're, we'll use all of these, uh, this, these historic terms, but we won't have any real like, depth of historical meaning. We'll, we'll, just, we'll, we'll go like, well, does the Bible say it? But we won't really define our terms. We won't really come to any conclusions about what the Bible says. We're just going to use these terms, or we're just going to say gospel and expect people to understand what gospel means without actually explaining what gospel means. They're like, well, it's a biblical word. We're just using biblical words. The reality is that most of us, or many of us, I assume, I know I did, grew up in churches where some of these words weren't used or they weren't defined. I know I did. That's not to say that the, the ministry of those churches was bad. They just assumed. They assumed these meanings. And so today, I, I want us to, to think about what the gospel really means. My hope is that today you're going to walk out of here with a better understanding of this gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's just start with the word itself, right? Verse, uh, just verse one, we're just going to be right there all day, all right? Verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's, what is that word? Well, the reality is that the word euangelion, 
which is the word translated gospel here, was relatively mundane in the first century. You might think that this was a special theological word. And they're like, yeah, like we're going to come up with a new Christian term for this good news. But really, I mean, it was pretty mundane. In fact, uh, one place outside of scripture that I found the word euangelion used, it was actually used in reference to the price of sardines. Right? It sounds like a great word, like this big theological term, but the reality is it was pretty mundane. It was very anticlimactic to read that, in fact, for me. Um, but what we see here is that the word itself means very, very little if it's not connected to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because without it, without that connection, the gospel is just general good news. Um, more, more particularly, as you look at the historical use of the word gospel before uh, the New Testament, uh, it was used to, to describe any advantageous event. So uh, particularly victories in battle or in politics, they would say, oh, this is good news. This is euangelion. This is gospel that we have won the battle today. So it's important that we understand that not just the word itself, but that to which it is connected. Perhaps the most interesting uh, use of the word euangelion that I found uh, outside of scripture comes from the, uh, the Priene inscription from around 9 BC. I don't know anything about this stuff. Uh, I just looked it up, all right? Just, you might think that I'm a historical scholar. I'm not. Uh, but it, it was a very interesting quotation that I found uh, from just 70, 60 or 70 years before uh, this would have been written by Mark just actually uh, about nine years before the birth of Jesus and 39 years before the ministry of Jesus began. It says this in, on this uh, Priene inscription. It says, whereas the providence has regulated our whole uh, existence, has brought, us, uh, brought our lives to the climax of perfection and giving us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war and set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, yeah, they said that, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news concerning him. In another place, Augustus was referred to not simply as God himself, but as Divi Filius, son of God. This is all before Jesus came on the scene. For the world, the birth of this emperor was the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, son of God. I hope that makes your skin crawl, because it does mine. This sort of man worship was pretty common in those days. They were looking to people to save them, these gods, these people whom they saw as gods to save them. And that might not be quite as prevalent today, but I'm not sure it's really gone anywhere. I mean, it's just become more hidden, more acceptable. I mean, sure, no one's asking you to worship them as a god. They're not saying, pray to me, bow down to me, things like that. Maybe they are. But you don't have to go too far before you find people acting like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever your political candidate is, is the savior of the world. 
No doubt, some people at, at political rallies look more like they're worshiping there than they do on Sunday mornings. It's true. And before you go pointing fingers out there, think about what you are trusting to save you. Are you really trusting right here, right now, that Jesus is going to save you? That, that is your hope, is, is it in him? Or is it in whatever happens in the next election? Or is it whatever happens in your bank account? Because the good news of the Republican Party won't save you. And the good news of the Democratic Party won't save you. The good news of the Libertarian Party won't save you. Your privilege or lack of it or whether you think it's a thing or not, won't save you. Good public policy and social justice won't save you. And maybe some of those things are good, maybe not, but every single one of them, if you believe in it, to save you is a false gospel. If you depend on them, they will utterly fail. The world is broken. We're broken. The only hope for us and this world is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. That's the only good news that matters. By writing these words, Mark presented a bold, and I mean bold, counter-narrative to the claim of the, this false gospel of Caesar Augustus. And to this day, his words strike out at us against the false hopes that we have in the things of this world. Mark connected the word gospel, not to creation, but to the creator. Not to a man who claimed to be God, but to God himself who became man. The gospel, the gospel, is only the gospel when it is connected with the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you might not think that there's much else to this verse. You're like, okay, you've, you've preached your sermon. <laughs> <laughs> that was a nice short one, Greg. You should, you should stop it right here. No, no, no. There is more, and I hope that we're going to come away with this with so much more depth and understanding about who Jesus was just by how he was described. I should say who Jesus is and was just by how he's described in this passage. So often we, we breeze right by even just the name of Jesus. We're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's Jesus. That's it, Right? But even his name says something about who he is. I don't know if you guys know what your name means, if you've ever done the research. Um, uh, my, mine does actually a really interestingly good job of describing kind of who I am. All right, so my, my full name is Gregory Michael Brown. Uh, Gregory means watchful one. So I, like, and I generally tend to sit back and watch and see what happens before I jump in, right? I want to see, like, I want to understand the whole situation before I jump in. And in fact, that name actually took on uh, some additional meaning over time. And uh, there's this connection to shepherding or pastoring, which is just a strange thing. I don't know. Um, you know it's funny how God's providence works out in those things. Um, my middle name, Michael, means who is like God. Uh, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question, right? It says, who is like God? The answer being no one. And I hope that if you know me, that you're going to go, okay, well, like, yeah, like God, like God's a pretty big deal for Greg. <laughs> you know, like Greg has a pretty large view of God, right? Um, so yeah, like they do a pretty good job of describing me and, and whether, uh, you know, that's just coincidence or providence or however you want to put it. Uh, the reality is that the name of Jesus 
is far more powerful than those connections. The gospel in which we believe is the gospel of Yeshua. It's Romanized as Jesus. His name means Yahweh is salvation. It's the, the, the in fact, uh, Yahweh is, or not Yahweh, sorry, Yeshua is where we get the name Joshua, right? So if, you're, if you know anybody named Joshua, their name is literally Yahweh is salvation. It's interesting. Um, Jesus' name alone tells us something about this good news. God provides salvation. It's not about people saving themselves. It's not the gospel of self-salvation or good works. It's the gospel of Yahweh who provides salvation for his people. If you, if you ever needed a reason to just celebrate the name of Jesus, maybe that's a good reason. That it's not dependent on you. It's actually dependent on God. It says God gives salvation. It's not about you. It's about him giving salvation. God takes wretched sinners from the darkest depths of depravity, sin, and death, and he raises them up to the heights of grace. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate, and this, uh, this name of Jesus reminds us that, not only by his actions, but by the very meaning of his name. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good he is. But there's more. Here, Christ is used as part of Jesus' name. It doesn't say Jesus the Christ. It doesn't say Jesus a Christ. It says Jesus Christ. The word Christos in the Hebrew word Masiach, uh, from which we derive our words uh, Christ and Messiah, mean anointed one. In the Old Testament, they would pour oil over a person's head in order to set them apart for a holy purpose. Usually this is uh, associated with priests and kings. In, in a way, every person who was set apart like this was a Messiah or an anointed one. But over time, given these messianic promises that God made through the prophets, uh, and particularly through the, uh, the promise of this eternal king who would sit on the throne of David, the idea of an, an anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah developed. So the anointed one would, would be the, the, the promised offspring of David. And if you've read the other gospels, you'll know that Jesus was descended from David. He would be the, the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And he would sit on the throne, not just for a short time, but forever and ever and he would usher in the kingdom of God and set up his rule, and his people would be blessed through him. So when Jesus is called the Christ, he's not simply a Messiah, he's the Messiah. He's the one that was set apart for the work of redemption. And he, so in doing so, he, he would live this perfect life. He would die a sinner's death, and he would be raised on the third day and take up his position with God the Father to reign over his kingdom. He would be the permanent king. He would be the anointed one. And by setting up this eternal and everlasting kingdom, the promised king is going to save his people and restore them to the promised land, which is precisely what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sins, restored our relationship to God, granted us eternal life, and promised us new heavens and new earth. When we say the gospel, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christos in Greek, 
or Yeshua Masiach in, in Hebrew. It's Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the one who came and was set apart for the work of redemption, the promised king, the priest, the one whose kingdom will never end. And this eternal hope is ours because Jesus was not only a man set apart for a purpose. Yes, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. In John 5.18, it shows us why the Jews sought to kill Jesus. It says this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So without being fully man, Jesus could not have lived the perfect life that we are required to live. He couldn't do that for us if he was only fully God. And without being fully God, he, he couldn't have taken the punishment for all of his people. He might have lived a righteous life for himself, but without being fully God... He couldn't have merited the glorious hope for eternity that we are promised. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. And so when Mark says, son of God, that's what he's getting at. This Jesus was both. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. I love J.C. Ryle. He, he puts things so nicely. And if you're going to buy a commentary on something, it's a, he's a great one to, to go to. He says this. We need not wonder that the sufferings of one person were a sufficient propitiation for the sin of the world when we remember that he who suffered was the Son of God. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to think of. This is the core of the gospel, and, and Mark puts it right there at the beginning of his story. He is Jesus. Salvation is from the Lord. He is Christ the anointed one, the eternal king, and he is the son of God. Because he is God incarnate, Jesus Christ saves every single person who believes. Without that, we would have no hope. But because of it, we have an eternal hope. So to put the gospel more concisely, perhaps, to give us like a definition of the term of the gospel. It's the good news that salvation is from God who sent his only begotten son, who was also God, to be the anointed one who would die for the sins of the world, rise on the third day, and bring his people into his kingdom, which will never end. That's a concise way to put the gospel, maybe even simpler. Jesus died so I might live. That's the good news. That's not just a good news. It's not just some kind of good news. It's not just good news about the price of sardines. It's not the good news of a man who set himself up as God. It's the good news of God. It's good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, I, I, I know that in fact, the, uh, the, the most interesting thing that I found uh, about the word euangelion outside of the Bible wasn't just the, the bit on Caesar Augustus. It was the fact that just consistently, maybe not the majority of the time, but pretty consistently, 
the word euangelion, gospel, is when it's written outside of scripture, it's associated with worship. When people received good news, they sacrificed to their gods. They worshiped. And, I mean, as twisted as it was that they should worship false gods, they kind of got a bit of it right, didn't they? I mean, isn't it funny how, like, ancient pagans get things so right and get so wrong at the same time? Isn't it strange how we sometimes don't draw the right conclusions, but they did? I mean, the right response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is worship. It's worship. If you're in Christ today, you have reason to celebrate, to thank God with your whole heart. You've been saved from sin and death. You've been saved from an eternity in hell. How wonderful is that? You get to spend an eternity in fellowship with the triune God of the universe who counts you as his children. I love it. And if it doesn't bring you to worship, then what are you doing? Do you really believe it? I know I do. I mean, I, I, I get excited about this stuff. I mean, so, so worship, right? Think about that. That's the right response here. Worship, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Don't let it just be raw words that you let out. Sing it with your heart. He says we should worship him in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in spirit means we really mean it with our whole hearts. Worshiping in truth means we worship him the way he has called us to worship. That's one of the ways. That's a command from scripture. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What would it look like, though, if we didn't just worship on Sundays? What, what if we worshiped with our whole lives? What might it look like to regularly even sing and pray individually or with your families? Some of you guys might think that's a little weird. Like, that's strange. I don't know how to do that with my family. Maybe you should start. Everything that starts is a little awkward. We're a little awkward. But maybe it's time. What might it look like to make Jesus the focus of your life? What might it look like to, to make Jesus the focus of your home? What might it look like to set aside those things that, that you've found to be so overpowering that maybe you don't talk about Jesus and you just talk about those things? What might, might, might it look like to set those aside and worship? I mean, you may never worship enough for what God has done, but that shouldn't stop us from living lives of thanksgiving and honor to him. We're not trying to repay him. That's not how this works. You can't repay him. It's impossible. You can't, you can't pay the price. That's why Jesus had to die. But when Jesus died, he gave you a reason to worship. The, the ancient pagans worshipped because of the gospel of victory in battle. They, they worshipped because of the gospel of the birth of an emperor. Their worship, though, it was short-lived. It was misdirected. It was for a, a momentary time. Our worship should be eternal because our good news is eternal. I got to ask you, like, in whom do you believe today? I mean, think about it. What are you trusting in? Do you trust in your bank account more than you do in Jesus? 
That's an easy temptation. When things are getting low in there, you're going, how in the world am I going to live? Are you trusting in Jesus? Or are you going, man, like, I, like my life is in utter despair because my bank account isn't where it should be. Are you, are you thinking eternally or are you thinking right here and right now? Would the news of a new job give you more joy than the news of eternal salvation? Think about it. It's, I, I'm not preaching here at, at the choir, right? Like I'm, I'm not just trying to get a yes and amen. I want you to think about it because I'm having to think about it. I'm having to ask these questions, go, okay, what is it that I am more fear, fearful about? What, it, what is it that really controls my life? Am I worried about my bank account? Am I worried about my job? Am I worried about the next election? Am I worried about whatever is going on in this world? Am I trusting in someone else to, to solve those things? And would that good news really get me fired up more than salvation? We really need to think about this. Think about what it means to live a life of worship. It's in proportion to what you've been given. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.